0: Let's dive into improving our state of being. This week on the Minding Wellness Podcast, I am so excited to bring on for the second time, my dear friend, Monica Acosta. She is so many things, an amazing person, a mother, a yogi. She is a yoga studio owner in Augusta, Georgia. Her studio name is Space Yoga Studio. She does not only traditional yoga in the studio, but also does amazing things within the community, working with PTSD and cancer and just so many amazing outreach programs. She's also a dear friend of mine, and we recently got to talking, and I found out and remembered because I think I knew at one point that she used to live in a convent, and I so wanted to bring her on for a discussion on that, her insights on that, and although that doesn't seem initially tied to wellness, I promise it is, and it will certainly come out as you listen to this episode, we dive into that experience, how that has shifted her perspective and how it has informed many of the des- decisions she makes today in her own life and her personal and professional life. Here we go. All right. I'm so excited to be here with my friend Monica Acosta. And we were just chatting um probably for a full half an hour. I'm not really sure. Probably. But we're going to <laughs> keep this super casual. I was telling her I don't have a, a really hard concrete plan, which is fantastic because mm-hmm. every once in a while we need a, a pretty chill episode. So there, there will be a wellness focus. So, so don't run away if you're listening and wondering what we're talking about. But uh, but I do <laughs> want to um, just welcome my friend Monika. And I told her I, I thought we had been on the podcast together before, but I had actually shared a recording we had done from from pre, pre podcast initiation. So I haven't had her on live, which means she has not answered the question yet. What does true wellness mean to you? So Monica, share that with Mm -hmm. us, please.
1: Um, well, true wellness. So, I mean, you know, but I'll just say it, you know, for your listeners that I do, I own a yoga studio. So I have a lot of um, my hands are in a lot of different places as far as like wellness in the community. And then in my own personal life, um, but I think actually, if I were to like boil it down, if I were to distill it to what true wellness means to me, I think I would say joy and peace. And I mean that on like all the levels of the self, you know, um, I have this like new life mantra, which is um, joy and peace in perpetuity. That's my like new until the day that I die for the rest of my life. Um, because I think so many times in our life, we choose things that are that feel great in the moment, you know, and we don't think about How does this affect my overall wellness for the rest of my life or for, for tomorrow or whatever? And, um, you know, sometimes it's really hard to make those choices because like, I do want to eat a whole cheesecake, you know, but I (laughs) will feel joyful about that later. You know, like that's, that might be temporary pleasure now. Um, but it's not going to give me that joy and peace in perpetuity, you know, into the future. So, um, I think when I, when I think about myself and I think about people that I work with when I consider what true wellness is, it's feeling that sense of like deep joy, deep peace, just throughout your whole mind body system, you know?
0: Joy and peace and perpetuity—that's gonna have to be the title exactly. of the podcast. I mean, it's done. Exactly. We're already done. Uh, I I love it, and I love the cheesecake reference, and this is this is why you have to stick stick to the rest of this podcast because Monika is hilarious, mm-hmm. and I love her sense of humor. So, Thank so you. Uh, love, love, love it. I love it because it does kind of—it's a short phrase, but it does give mm-hmm. you some intentionality with whatever choice you're about to make. Like, okay, yeah. does this give me? And and the perpetuity part is obviously a, a key. Mm-hmm. Factor there. So, all right, cool. So yeah, let's just give a little bit of background on, uh, you talked about you own a yoga studio, a little bit of background mm-hmm. on, on you and your journey, but then we're going to dive into your experience in a convent. And that's how this whole podcast yes. idea <laughs> episode with you started. It I was, I was halfway joking, not really over text that um, mm-hmm. I feel like living amongst the monks would be pretty fantastic. And then Monique mm-hmm. is like, you know, I lived in a convent, right? I'm like, all right, done podcast episodes. So <laughs> so here we are. So give us a little background and then let's dive right into the convent.
1: Um, yeah. So it, it's actually interesting um, now when I think about like my life and the way that things in a way they've kind of come full circle. I mean, obviously I'm not a nun, like by any stretch of the imagination, I'm a mother, you know, and I, run a business and everything. Um, but I think when it comes to the aspects of that type of life, it's, that's, what's always been like deep in my heart, you know, the things that drew me there in the first place are still the things that draw me into doing what I do every day. Um, so, you know, I, I grew up in kind of a non-traditional environment, um, and a very religious community. And, um, I found so much peace with the, um, with, or the order of nuns that, so what, how it started is when I was about 13, the organization where I was living or working with, um, they had a program where you could go and you could essentially volunteer with this order of nuns, which is actually mother Teresa's order of nuns, the missionaries of charity. Um, and their unique order because they are not cloistered, which means that they normally nuns are cloistered. So they live inside of a convent and it's closed off to the you know, like you would think of a monk, like what mm-hmm. you were talking about, you know, um, the missionaries of charity are not cloistered other than when like they eat and when they pray, their work is with the people, just like Mother Teresa was, you know, they do work in the community, they're very big on service. Um, and that's kind of their, you know, to use a yoga word, that's their dharma, that's their mission, you know, they, Um, go out and they work with children. They work with um, disadvantaged individuals of all different types, um, with the elderly. And so this program was like, hey, go and spend a few weeks um, with this order of nuns. And they were up in a mining town in Kentucky. So like way up in the mountains, um, very, very small little city where there was a severe lack of education, a severe lack of resources most of the adults worked in the mining community. So, you know, there's just a lot of like health issues that come along with that and um, a lot of poverty issues. And so anyways, I went up there for the summer um, and spent the summer with them and I just fell in love with them. And so from that point forward, I would spend all of my summers with them. Um, And it just kind of, eventually I said, you know, this is like what I want to do for my life. You know, I was very, very drawn to, the fact that these were like very authentic um, people, very authentic individuals who were just making what to me seemed like extremely sound life choices. They were living small. Um, they never were they, they were, they were like never at need. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Because they, they only worked with the things that they directly needed. Um, and I think something that's kind of processed in my brain over the years is that it was really the first time that I had seen particularly in a religious environment, but in a lot of different environments, um, an organization that was only women, you know? And and really, I, even to this day, I think those women were some of the most empowered women that I ever have met. And and I know that might seem like, you know, oh, they're part of this like patriarchal religious system and, but they, but they made these choices, you know? These women mm-hmm. independently made choices and really make choices every day to be part of what they're doing. Um, and they just live a life of service. So I think that was a very, that was like very impressive to me that these women were completely self-sustaining. Um, you know, they don't live, uh, in, so like you, you know, you said convent and I was in the quote convent, but they don't live in like buildings that Mm -hmm. are like what you would see in, you know, Europe or whatever, where you're like, Oh, that's a convent. They live in houses, um, inside of, really underprivileged um, neighborhoods. And so the organization just basically purchases a house, a regular house, and that becomes the convent. That's where the sisters live in the in the houses. So every time that I would go into these different places um, around the country where I would work with them, uh, I was in Kentucky for a little bit. I was in New York um, for a time. And then when I actually was like, this is what I'm gonna do, it was in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so they're just houses, you know, if you were driving in the neighborhood, you'd have no idea that this was a place where nuns lived It just look like another house. Um, but also that, that was like the base of all of their operations. So that's how they kind of lived amongst the people and worked with the people and stuff. So, um, I don't know. Did that answer your question? Yeah. No. That's I all, that's I kind of got, went on a tangent. I
0: know it's it's perfect. It's super interesting, and I I don't know how I didn't know all the. I know that you had mentioned that in the past, but I feel like how is it that we never had these conversations? Because this is so fascinating to me, and maybe I just wasn't in the mm-hmm. in the space of, of it being as fascinating back then. But it right. is. So it 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 kind of remind. It sounds like a Jay Shetty story. Like Jay Shetty, you know, was like, you know, lived amongst the monks in the summers, and then went back to his you know corporate job in the or you know school or whatever right. he was doing during the year. So. So I think it's cool that you were able to sort of do that in the summer. Um, and it wasn't necessarily like a renouncing of your life. And now this is what you did, but it was mm-hmm. an incorporation. So what, um, what does a day look like? What did a day look like when you were a part of this? So you arrive at this house, um, there's how many other people, and then what are you guys doing in the day?
1: Yeah. So every house, other than the very large houses, like some of the, um, like the mother house, for example, is in New York. And that is the, that's where you go. Like, if you say, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to become a nun. And you go and you take your vows. You're there at the mother house for, ai don't know, I don't remember exactly how many years, but it's like a good period of time, you know, almost like an internship, you know, or a residency for a doctor. Like that's your, your time to learn all of the ins and outs and everything. Um, but most houses are just regular homes in regular neighborhoods um, usually very low income neighborhoods where there's a lot of need. Um, and there are typically four sisters to each house. So when you go into, um, like when, when I would go to volunteer, so they're cloistered when they eat and when they sleep. So you can't really, um, live in the house with them. Now, when I decided that that's what I wanted to do, I did live in the house with them. That was the summer after I graduated high school. But up until that point, when I would go to volunteer. I would just stay at another, you know, like a family home or a lot of these, um, a lot of these houses in different cities, they have volunteers so frequently that they actually own second homes. And then the volunteers will stay kind of like a guest house almost. Um, And so, you know, in like in Kentucky, we would stay in the guest house and then in the morning, and and it's very regimented, um, which I think I really, I'm a person of routine. I've always been that way. And so it just really spoke to me. Um, You know, it's like they, it's even more regimented when you're part of it. So like once I was there living with them, it was much more intensive a regimen. But normally if you're volunteering, you, you would wake up in the morning, you start the day with mass um, with prayer. And then from there, you know, you go and you do work and then there's like a, a prayer time at lunch you know, before lunch happens and then you would eat, the sisters would go off to eat by themselves, but the volunteers would eat together. Um, And then there's just more work. And then usually about three or four in the afternoon, there's a prayer time that involves maybe like saying the rosary. Um, But generally the sisters, you know, even if they, let's say, are driving around um, from location to location, they're saying rosaries as they're driving. So every, every spare moment is used for prayer, essentially, Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end of the day, there would be another like evening prayer time. And, and as a volunteer, that's when you kind of end your day. If like, once I was there in the convent, it was different, you know, like we would be up in the morning at five directly into prayer time prayer. And then there was like lots of, of uh, times of uh, silence, you know, so we'd have like three or four hours of silent time where no one was allowed to speak. And it was kind of like, you're silent meditation, prayer time, you know, preparing for the day, stuff like that. And the sisters, once they're fully, you know, in the organization um, and they've done vows and everything, they have certain like litanies of prayers that they're saying as they're in that silent time. But for me, because I hadn't taken any vows, it was just silent meditative time. Um, And then, and then all the things that the volunteers would join in, those things still happen. And then after the evening time, then that's when, There's additional prayers and everything, you know, before bed, additional silent time, stuff like that. But it's very much, um, you know, the same, the same every single day. There's a, a plan. There's a, you know, when your silent time is, you know, when your meals are, you know, when your prayer time is when mass is going to be, um, so yeah, it's very regimented. It's very, um, and it's not a lot of people, it's four sisters to a house. So it's very intimate as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and then once I was there, I actually, so the house in Charlotte where I was, where I was staying, um, was kind of like a a regular house that had like a little basement area. Um, it wasn't like a full basement, but it was like a finished basement that would have been like a game room in a regular house. And they had it outfitted, um, with where all of the like rooms, smaller rooms were basically storage closets. And, you know, the sisters, they generally, they are not purchasing food, like they eat what's provided for them. So um, one of the things that we would do in Charlotte is there was a couple of like fresh market grocery stores there. And we would go at the end of the week and they would just give us all of the like produce and food that they could not sell. That was like, either they were going to throw it away, they would give it to us. And then we would take it and distribute it around the neighborhood And then whatever was left, that's what we would be eating for, you know, the week or whatever. Um, And let me tell you, uh, it was not all good. And I don't mean good, (laughs) like delicious. I mean, good, like some of it was past its point, you know, Mm. but um, they are always maintaining a spirit of gratitude. And so, you know, there were many times that we were like cutting rotten parts off of food and, and eating what was there or you know, cause the, the good food, the food that did not have all of the problems would go to the people. Mm-hmm. And so the, what was leftover is what we would be eating. Um, and so that was the first time that I was eating with the sisters and spending all of that cloistered time with them before that summer, I would, they would go off to, to do their thing. And then I would go with the volunteers or whatever. Um, but literally I slept on one of the shelves in their basement. in the in the um, house in Charlotte and so I just had like a little sleeping bag and a pillow and the bottom shelf of the one of the storage units was pretty much the only place that there was and so I just slept down there Um, and then the sisters would come down and get me um, in the morning at like five to start the day and then we you know we'd go through the day or whatever so
0: This is, um, really interesting. I, a lot of questions coming up for me. The first Mm -hmm. is the silent time. Um, is this the first time you had been involved in any type of extended period of silence, um, under like a direction or under in a group setting? And how was that for you?
1: Um, I, so I would say that was the first time that I had been through like that that long of a time and that frequent like to where it was like an everyday thing. Um but I've always kind of had a like silent times in my life. Like I I really value silence. Like I mean even now I will sit around my house and just in the silence. You know, I had a friend come over the other night and and he was like um what are you doing? And I'm like I'm I'm like sitting here. You know, I was like doing reading or whatever and he's like or, It's so quiet, like in your house. (laughs) There's no, are you going to put on music? You know, but like I've just become very accustomed to just being in silence. And then, and even like when I was younger, um, it was like that. You know, there were times in my life where we didn't like have a television um, because I didn't, you know, come from a wealthy family. So I just got used to kind of being quiet, I guess. So it was the first time that I had been, and then also the work with the sisters before there was a lot of quiet time between them. Um, So it wasn't totally new to me. It was kind of comforting in a way I would say, I still find it comforting. Like there's definitely moments where um, even now I'm like, there's just so much noise, you know, like it, Mm -hmm. it gets, um, I don't want to say like sensory overload, but it does kind of sometimes get to the point to me where I'm like, okay, I've reached my threshold, you know, with like, um, I don't want to say sounds, but like talking or visuals, or, you know, um, even like with my phone, I'm getting to the point where, I mean, I haven't had social media for like two years almost now, personally, but I have it for my business. And even for my business, I'm about to hand it off because I'm like, I can't even, that is too much noise for me. Even like reading the news, I'm like, ah, it's noisy, you know, like, um, I definitely have always been a person who values silence. Um, I think that maybe the different thing or the the factor or the element that made it unique was being with other people in silence you know mm-hmm. like it's that is a different feeling being alone and in silence that's one thing um but then if there's no one there to talk to you're like oh what well, you know what am i going to do nobody to talk to but when you are in a space where you're with others and in silence it it is um it turns more into like a a sense of reverence, um, or like a sense of respect, you know, because now you're silent for yourself, but also there's a way that you're just kind of honoring the needs and the, um, desires of other people by honoring their silence and not interrupting their Mm -hmm. silence and stuff like that. So that part was unique, but, um, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it did not bother me, you know, in any way. Um, I would say that back then. And even now I feel more, my spirit feels more disrupted by excessive noise than it does by excessive silence. And I know that for a lot of people, especially like culturally now and socially silence may be terrifying. The thought of silence, you know? Um, and I think that's a practice as well. You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think about, you know, we, we know the term awkward silence that we feel like if we're, we're having yeah. a conversation with somebody, it's, it's weird if there's silence and it's awkward. So we are filling in the gaps and we aren't mm-hmm. really taught. It's not modeled for us to, to be in silence. I think about, you know, mm-hmm. back when we were kids and we had the corded phones, I remember being on the phone with my friend and we were doing nothing. I mean I don't know we right. weren't even talking but we were just on the phone and I was like it's right. interesting that we're able to do that you know I was able to do that on the phone because she wasn't in front of me but then maybe if she was mm-hmm. in front of me it would be this awkward silence because we're not talking but right. I think it, we I don't think silence is something modeled or because it doesn't yeah. sell I mean noise is what sells so it's a consumer Correct. you know consumer society and so it's a really interesting concept of being okay in your own silence, but then being okay and honoring the silence for somebody else that like, no, I don't have to talk Mm -hmm. to make you comfortable. I can just honor the fact Mm -hmm. that you also are in silence and we can just be in silence together. It's just a really interesting, I mean, it's not like it's a complicated thing. It's just, it's so against what we're used to and, but it carries so much value. And, you know, I think with social media, since you brought that up today, it's like, we feel like we're sitting in silence, but we're not, the noise is just, it's not audible. It's just coming through our visual. It's still noise. You know, we people, I think feel like they are sitting in silence, but it's just parallel play on the phones. You know, can we Mm -hmm. sit in silence without any, any intrusion from any sense, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and that's difficult, but, but so valuable if we can get to that place. So Really, really cool. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the actual work. So was the work, the volunteerism and the work that you were doing in the community, was that mostly, um, serving the, the food needs of, of the community or was
1: there, um, you know, were you building things? What, what was the actual work? Um, it was all, it was really all across the board. I mean, you know, when I mentioned earlier that like, this was maybe the first, uh, group of women. Who really, really, to this day, some of the most empowered women I've ever known in in my life. Um, And they would do anything. It it was kind of like, what are we, what are the needs today? You know, so there were certain things that we did uh, that were like routine, like bringing food around. That was like a standard thing. We did that every week. Um, We also visited uh, like nursing homes or other uh, people who were shut-ins. We would. That was pretty standard just taking visits around and we would bring them food and just, you know, company. I mean, you know, it's interesting. (laughs) And I've been having this conversation with more and more people, I think because of maybe the pandemic and because a lot of people who have never confronted silence have never confronted loneliness, they are confronting that for the first time. Um, we don't think about all the noise that's constantly surrounding our lives. Right. But, but we have it, even if like we think, oh, well, I'm always home alone, but I work in a place where there's a lot of people. Now I'm also working at home. So I've been having this conversation more and more, but um, it's interesting that there's like this this reverence and silence, but then also this like terror and loneliness. You know, you think they would be parallel. You think, well, silence is being alone. Um, but there, I think there's a difference when you're saying, I'm going to embrace this loneliness. I'm going to embrace the silence and use it to grow versus it's something that's being forced on me. And I'm, I'm not prepared for it mentally or spiritually. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, loneliness loneliness really breaks people down. Um, and so a lot of the people who we would visit, we were the only people, you know, like, like people who were very sick or who were disabled, who didn't have family couldn't leave their homes. We were the only people they would see in the whole week. Um, And I mean, now, especially, you know, back then I was, you know, 13, 15, 17, I was so young. um, And I just thought, oh, this is a great way to do some good. Now as an adult, I think that probably saved their lives. You know, Mm -hmm. that one amount of contact was probably sacred to them, you know, to be able to feel like I'm not alone in this world. Um, So that was a big part of the work that we did, visiting people, bringing them food. Also, most of the houses have Um, kind of like an after-school program, which really is an after-school program because they're not, they're not always like um, planned activities. But in Charlotte, for example, we lived in one of the very, very low-income neighborhoods where you have typical problems that you see with low-income neighborhoods, which are um, parents who have to work in order to sustain a household, but children who have to go to school. And so the parents can't afford, you know, to put them into any kind of child care. So normally, you would be looking at people like that are latchkey kids. You know, get home from school on the bus, and now they're waiting at home alone until the parents get there. Well, the sisters would provide space for the kids to come after school. So instead of them going home and being alone and and stuck in the houses until their parents got home, they come to the mm-hmm. to the house. And you know, we 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 do like we give them snacks and we basically like I did homework with a lot of them played different board games with them, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then that would continue like into the summer, we would do that, but all day long. So it would provide essentially childcare for, um, for the neighborhood kids. Um, and then like around the holidays, we would go and, and find presents and give presents and carry the, those out to the people. So it really was, um, then there, we, we did do some like building, um, as well, it was really just like, what are the needs today? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what needs can we meet today? Um, that we can't meet just through prayer. And I think that was really what, what drew me to that organization. Um, so much, I've always been a person of action. Like I've Mm -hmm. always been, even when I was, you know, before I started doing that, when I was young, I've always been a person who's like, if I sit here, nothing happens. You know, maybe if I, if I do something, it won't be the right thing, or maybe I'll make a misstep, but I have to do something. I can't just sit here and do nothing. Um, so I felt very connected to that mission of theirs. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we can all, we all know that these problems exist, but it made me feel like, okay, I can be part of the solution. You know, I can, I can be, um, in, as they would say at Christ in action, you know, mm-hmm. going out into the world and and just one problem at a time, you know, trying to trying to serve. So and it's very interesting because I see that even in my life now, you know, it's a different it's a, from a different perspective. I mean, I'm I own a business and it is a business, but it I do a you know, work on a donation based system, and we do offer, so many, um, no cost programs in the community. And, and really a lot of that comes out of those. I mean, it's informed by those experiences, you know, like you, I don't think you, you get involved with that and then it doesn't become a part of like the Mm -hmm. fabric of who you are. It just, it just is so, um, you know, even now, like being a small business owner, going through the pandemic, I have been nothing but grateful this whole time. I mean, I have moments of panic and the minute that I have them. I'm like, Whoa, you know, I can think back to so many hundreds of people who didn't have the opportunities that I have, who didn't have the know-how, who didn't have the support, who didn't have the community or whatever. Um, That's a lot for me to be grateful for, you know, Um, more than it is anything else. So I'm always trying to kind of, um, like use that as my foundation, you know, like that, that's always like my sobering thought. Like I can really quickly go down these rabbit holes of anxiety, but like, for what, you know, Mm -hmm. for what, um, because I've really been blessed. I mean, I am, I'm just so blessed. I was blessed to have that experience. I'm blessed to remember that experience. I'm blessed to, you know, be able to hopefully translate that into some of the work that I'm doing now in the community here. So.
0: Yeah, really good. I was thinking as you were talking I was about to ask how that has translated into the work that you're doing and I know that you um you give so much to the community and it's really interesting how this ha- how your journey has played into that and and largely you know sort of dictated the way that you approach your business in a, in a way that's much different than than many small business owners. So really interesting. I'm wondering um and I know we'll wrap up soon but with regard to the the food just kind of going back to sort of the humility and gratitude around Taking the the scraps that are left and making that mm-hmm. into into the food because you know I was I'm thinking we get so wrapped up into like okay well what are we gonna have for dinner tonight you know what yeah. what super fresh meal am I gonna make tonight I'm so frustrated over it because I got to <laughs> think about it <laughs> right. versus I mean we're gonna put together whatever is left that the community didn't need that you know was left over from their needs being met and so what right. um, how was that going into it and then how how did that sort of evolve you know, your sense of understanding of, of their humility and that,
1: and their sort of lack of, of needing or wanting more than that. Um, you know, it's, it is so interesting because like, for me, that was not, I, I grew up very poor. So that was like, um, that was not foreign to me at the time. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it is interesting because one of my biggest struggles right now is as a person who did not grow up with money and, and who worked so hard, I mean the, the business that I have, the, the degrees, the education that I have, I spent a lot of money for those things, you know, money that I worked super hard to earn so that I could then spend to, to do the things that I'm doing. And because of that, my child has a life that I did not have. I mean, that's, that's the whole reason, right? I mean, I want him to have a different life experience now as he's becoming a teenager, I'm like, hold on a moment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm trying to find that balance of like, as a person who grew up without money going into that situation, it didn't feel foreign. You know, it felt like, oh, okay. You know, this is just what we do. If I put my son in that Mm -hmm. situation, I think he would like be ready to die, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and even more so because he has a very severe food allergy. So most of the food that we eat is like it, organic and whole foods. And, and that's not because like, I'm a super hippie person who made those choices, but those are always like where the non food allergy food is, you know? Mm-hmm. And now I know more about nutrition and I think it's important, but I also understand that many people don't have access to those types of foods. And so it, it's an interesting question because I find myself now as an adult, some days I really want to be like, guess what we're eating for dinner? Saltine crackers, <laughs> you know, like eat it, go into bed and think about it, you know, because that is, that might seem ridiculous. I mean, he probably think it was like the worst child abuse ever. He'd be like calling defects on his own. Like she's giving me crackers. You know what I'm like like he he can't. And in a way that's like a blessing, right? In a way that's like Um, the fruits of all the hard labor of, of living a difficult life to be able to provide a better life for the next generation. I think that resonates with so many people who grew up in poverty with so many um, um, immigrants, with so many people of different, you know, life stories, but in another way, it's like, Oh, you know what I'm saying? Like, how Mm -hmm. do, how do you simultaneously provide that experience that you worked so hard to provide and, and have your child come out without struggling, but also give them an appreciation for the struggle. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a weird, unfortunate situation that, that sometimes I think you only have compassion for the struggle. If you've been in the struggle, Mm -hmm. you know Um, I think we, we see that, like that disparity on so many different levels, you know, And, and it's hard. Like I think sometimes like the the thing that I usually related to is like, uh, someone who hikes the Appalachian trail, you know, like, first of all, I'm never going to do that ever. Like I have no desire to do it. Like I would literally rather be silent for 30 days straight (laughs) than like hike the Appalachian trail. Like I'm not going to do it. It doesn't even sound enjoyable. Um, but I imagine it's really difficult and I have friends who've done it, you know, when they're telling me about it, I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, that has to really suck. I mean, I can't even imagine, how many days and your feet feeling like whatever and you know all the mountains being so high and everything, but I will never really know what that feels like, right? Like so, I can I can look from the outside and I can go I can absolutely imagine because I walk like you know three miles on flat ground that walking like whatever five hundred miles that is you know on like rocky terrain or whatever must be horrific, um, but I'm never gonna do it and so I'm never really gonna have that that like embodied life experience Mm -hmm. you know um and so while i might be looking at someone who's who's hiking the appalachian trail and i might think oh don't they need some water they're like yeah but what i really need is better socks you know what i'm saying right right And, and you don't know that until you walk that trail and so to me that's a very humbling concept and like i try to try to instill that in my son to say like you know you're blessed because you don't ever have to walk this rocky terrain you don't ever have to have these experiences But what I really am not going to allow you to do is to get up into this weird space where you can't be humble and grateful for the experiences that you do have, you know, the life experiences that you've been blessed enough to have, because I think again, the pandemic has shown everybody, it can be gone like this,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, two seconds in, you, you just never know what is coming. Um, I don't know. Did that answer your question? <laughs> no, it's such a great conversation
0: to have. I really, we could have a, an entire episode on this because I struggle with the same thing with my own son is, uh, you know, I mm-hmm. often say, okay, I think it's time for a mission trip. I think we're at that point now. <laughs> like we need <laughs> right. we need a different perspective. That's where we're at. So, yeah. uh, cause you know, yeah. I, went, I didn't live in, in a similar um, environment in a convent type of a situation, but I did go on a mission trip to Belize and um, you know, but you know, I, I think that the the kids these days don't necessarily you know I get the, I get the concept of we are trying to provide them everything how do Mm -hmm. we couple that with having true humility? Not, not like pity, you know, over somebody's situation, but humility and empathy because you've seen it, you've worked in it, you know, and that, that, Mm -hmm. that's an experience. that has to be an experience. It can't be, I read about it or, or I tell you that as we drive by, you know, the homeless population, like you've got to really be in it. And, and that requires hands-on, it can't be taught. So um, yes, that could be, an entire episode, we could probably bring on every <laughs> every parent in America, because I'm sure yes, uh, we're literally. All at some point <laughs> wanting to to teach our kids that. So I would For love sure. to sort of come full circle. So in the beginning, you said uh true wellness, sort of, you know, you kind of encapsulated it as joy and peace and perpetuity. And I would love to mm-hmm. know, maybe you didn't use that verbiage or those words back then, but how mm-hmm. did that experience then, um you know, translate and your journey come to the point where where those words speak to you uh, in, in a way that that, you know, is in reverence and in respect mm-hmm. to your, your journey back then?
1: I think that, you know, I think I still to this day find joy and peace in exactly the same things that I always did, you know? Um, and I've often, I, we, we work so hard to build narratives in our lives, you know, about who we are, about what we are, about what we are trying to be. Um, and I mean, you know, have known me for long enough now to know that my narrative has burnt to the ground, you know, I mean, earlier we talked about my house need to be burnt to the ground. Cause it's so <laughs> filthy. You know what I mean? Like my narrative was so filthy. It had to go. Um, and, and I have often told people you can let everything burn around you, but the essence of you will not change. You know, the things that bring you joy and peace will always bring you joy and peace. And I think we sometimes forget that because especially as we get older, we get caught up in all of the social status and the, you know, wealth status or whatever, whatever the thing is, you know, whatever it is, the one thing that really reaches out and grabs us. I think that's our challenge as adults, you know, will this, this kind of battle with the narrative, will that define me or will I win the battle? And then I can then lean into what's actually joyful and what's peaceful in my life. So, um, I think probably the reason that you didn't, we never had this conversation is because there's always been this little like, um, voice in the back of my head. That's like, um, that makes you a weirdo. You know what I mean? Like, like who else is out here doing this? Right. Um, other people were like making out with their boyfriend or like planning a Mm -hmm. long-term wedding or like where I'm going to go to college. And I was like, yeah, let me just go live in a convent and. Um, For a long time, I was like, I don't know if I should really talk about this because that makes me, it it puts a a certain lens on my life experience. Um, And it's taken me a long time to kind of come around to the fact that like, even if it made me look like a weirdo, that is deeply a part of who I am. That has informed so much of the way that I live my life now. And as I have let other parts of my narrative kind of fizzle out, what I'm realizing is, the joy and the peace that I find now is exactly the joy and the peace that I found then, you know, it's just been like a really rough road and darkness to get here, you know, to where I see that at at my life now. Um, And then also, I think the in perpetuity part, that is something I've recently added, because I think what I didn't have the wisdom to see when I was, you know, 15 and 17 is that the choices that we make for joy and peace, if they're not made for joy and peace in perpetuity, really, what are they bringing us in the moment? They're bringing us temporary pleasure. They're bringing us temporary gratification. And so I think I was making a lot of choices that were good, that gave me joy and peace in the moment. And then I was making a lot of choices that were bad, that were giving me, I don't want to say bad, that sounds judgy, but they weren't optimal choices, you know, for my life, but were giving me joy and peace in that moment. And I wasn't really thinking about what does that look like in the long term, You know, now I have the wisdom to see that. And I can look at what my choices are now. And I can think this might feel like joy in the moment, but is this going to feel like joy tomorrow? Like I mentioned the cheesecake, it might feel like joy eating it now, but when I feel sick to my stomach later, that's not joy, that's not peace. That's like unrest on every mind body level. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, and then if I gain 30 pounds, cause I kept eating cheesecake, then again, I'm, I'm in this I'm in a space of discord. I'm not in a space of joy and peace. And I mean, I'm using food, um, just because that's what's in my brain. But I mean, it goes to everything. It speaks to everything, you know. So, I think that the 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 foundation of what gives me those feelings has really always been the same. You know, it's always been connection to other people. It's always been a connection to myself. It's always been choices that allow me to be kind and compassionate but also to protect myself and to love myself and um, and really I think being open to like change to being open to being wrong um, being open to like "Hmm, maybe I didn't always make the right choices but that's okay you know I'm, I'm just human being human I guess maybe that's it you know really just truly being human for me, that's what always brings me joy and peace in perpetuity, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: It's such a really awesome story. And it and it makes me totally think about all of the reasons that you didn't necessarily share these details with me and the reasons that mm-hmm. I didn't ask, you know, like, okay, right. you know, I remember you mentioning convent and it was kind of in passing and, you know, me then was like, okay, that's part of her story. Me now is like, let's get on a podcast and dive into this. And that's <laughs> right. just, that's just, you know, the evolution of what we, what we want to talk more about and the deeper conversations that we want yes. as we grow older and we realize what's really important. So I'm really glad that we had this opportunity to talk. Yeah, I love for the sure. peace and joy in perpetuity. I I can completely resonate with that. And it it definitely brings to mind how the the perpetuity part makes it such that we aren't constantly striving because it's it, if it's not in perpetuity, mm-hmm. it is always the next thing and there's never an end to it. And yeah, and thinking about it more long term makes us really more intentional about our choices. And ultimately that's, um, I feel like, you know, I, I want everything to be slower. I was talking to a cardiologist yesterday and we were mm-hmm. talking about walk, you know, just getting back to like the the basics, like walking, you know, we we yeah. everything's like fast. And then as we grow older, we just want it slower. Like we want the conversations about convents and we just, you know, we yeah. it's like, let's just get slower and more methodical and intentional about the long-term versus let's just run and then we'll just fix it along the way. Um, mm-hmm. so anyways, all really, really interesting. Um, I think my dog's about to bark. So, <laughs> um, that was a perfect, that was perfect time. I see him getting all riled up. So yeah. I so appreciate this conversation, Monica. Yeah, um, thanks for having yeah, me. So appreciate our, our friendship for those who, uh, Same. I don't, I haven't, I don't think I shared it in the last one, but yeah, there he goes. Uh, we met oh, over food allergies. Your so, um, <laughs> so yes, I'll, I'm just so, 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 so happy that, that we, uh, that we met and that we've continued this, this friendship and relationship. So much love for you. sure. Same. Okay, you too. Thank you so much to Monica for spending this time with us and sharing her insights. I just find it so fascinating that we have so much to unlearn and rethink, shift our perspective, and sometimes just this way of life, changing it to this significant of a change that Monica so bravely and courageously did can show us so much of what we need to unlearn and could benefit from. So thank you, Monika. I will have her studio link in the show notes if you would like to learn more about the amazing work she does. And if you are interested in my master heart, which is a spin off of a master mind, we start January 22nd. It's called Surrender Gym. We have a few more spots. The intention is to start to release the need for our control over every minutia in our lives and start to see the perfect imperfection and live with and alongside the natural flow of life with ease, peace, and ultimately finding more happiness. You can visit that at Surrender surrendergym.com. I'll see you here again next time.